Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this time we're going to be rating ourselves as a space ace with Star Challenge, Planets in Peril, the 1984 gamebook by Christopher Black, illustrated by Maelo Sintro, a name I am almost certainly butching, apologies, with cover art by Colin Sullivan. Very quick bit of admin before we get into this thing. I need to thank Spencer, a supporter over on patreon.com forward slash hjdoom for increasing their pledge. Thank you very much for that. These bonus episodes are only possible because of kind souls like you who are willing to put their hand in their pocket to support my nonsense. Now let's get into this episode. I picked up this book for two reasons. The first relates to the last episode where we covered Skylord and I wondered at some length about whether spaceships and laser-focused adventure game books were somehow doomed to failure from the outset. They certainly had a rocky old time in fighting fantasy, but maybe, just maybe, there's creators out there who can make them work. The Star Challenge series popped up and the first book, Planets in Peril, seemed like a perfect piece of serendipity. I do love it when I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do for the next episode, and the universe just obligingly plonks something interesting in my lap. The second reason I'm interested to cover this one is that the cover art is absolutely great. I'm a sucker for old-school sci-fi covers, and this book featuring two armoured figures in black standing on an alien landscape is a real belter. There's the skeleton of some kind of mysterious beast in the foreground. It's a pair of suns connected by crackling lightning bolts in the background. It's a classic of the genre, and that just makes me happy. I've not been able to find much information about the author. One source suggests that Christopher Black was a pen name, and the only credits I've found are all books in the Star Challenge series, which suggests that maybe this would be a standard pen name used by the publisher for a series that was written by a bunch of different jobbing writers. The same way the Hardy Boys books were all credited to Franklin W. Dixon, despite being penned by many different authors over many, many years. Maiello Sintron seems to have done a whole bunch of science fiction covers through the late 70s to early 90s, and seems like a safe pair of hands looking at his resume. Colin Sullivan, on the other hand, seems almost as elusive as Christopher Black. In an age where information on most people is extremely easy to come by, there's something slightly melancholy about looking back to an earlier time and realising that there's plenty of creators who will ultimately sink without trace, but that's just the reality of history. We think of ourselves as living in a time where everything gets recorded, but actually there's still plenty of stuff that falls through the gaps. Now, the Star Challenge books are closer to a choose-your-own-adventure book than to something like Fighting Fantasy, but they do have the unique gimmick of a scoring system, whereby the different endings are given a rating ranging from Congratulations, you're a space ace, all the way down to Go Back to Space Academy. I'm excited to give this one a spin, so let's jump right into Planets in Peril. Uh, from the outset, I want to just read the uh, the intro page because even though it's not going to be telling us anything we don't already know about how choose-your-own-adventure-style books are played, 
I think it's just quite a nicely written example of the genre. So it opens with, Red alert! You must not read this Star Challenge TM adventure in the ordinary human way. If you read the pages in order, the story will not compute. Instead, follow the directions on the bottom of each page. Everything will depend on the choices you make. Each choice can lead you to a different Star Challenge TM adventure. To help you along the way, you have a Task Operation Robot Model 2. Call him 2TOR. That's 2, the number 2, dash, T-O-R, or Tutor, we could maybe pronounce it as. He can do amazing things, from warping you through space faster than the speed of light, to talking with you through your mind. Not sure I want a robot that can talk to me through my mind. I think that would feel a lot like a psychotic break with reality. Every time you and Tutor complete a mission, warp to page 115 to find out how you rate as a space ace. So there we go, and uh, we will jump straight in to the adventure. Uh, there is a picture on the facing page of this introduction to our mission. And it shows a man dressed in, I can't believe it's not a Star Trek uniform, standing in front of some computers on which a space station or a satellite seems to be being displayed. I would describe the man as not actually having a mullet, but running the very serious risk that if he doesn't attend to his barnet in fairly short order, he will just have entered full-on mullet territory. So uh, a little sartorial jeopardy there, just from the outset. Welcome aboard. The year is 2525. Isn't there a song about that? Yes, there is. It's a nice little psychedelic pop song which was covered to tremendous effect by goth rock superstars Fields of the Nephilim. Anyway, I digress. The year is 2525 AD, an age where mankind is moving out among the stars. You've just come aboard the space station Nebula, home of the peacekeeping and investigation branch of the Network of Worlds. That's all in capitals. From this man-made satellite, you as a Nebula operative will go out into the galaxy taking care of trouble. The Nebula teleportation system can send you anywhere in the galaxy instantly. Or you can pilot your own space shuttlecraft, the Challenger. Ooh, dearie me, what year was the Challenger disaster? Is this pre-Challenger disaster? I really hope so. Yep, this is from 1984 and the, uh, the tragedy... Uh, that struck the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger was January 1986. So uh, it's only tasteless and worrying in retrospect. It wasn't at the time. If you need help at any time, feel free to send to the Nebula for reinforcements. Remember, the success or failure of your mission, not to mention your own survival, will depend on your choices. Successful Nebula operatives are people who can make quick, thoughtful decisions. So I can do one of those all of the time, and the other one, some of the time, I cannot do both at the same time. Hurry! Captain Polaris needs you! So already it's kind of an interesting setup. I feel as though a teleporter that operates across a galactic scale would lead to all kinds of problems. I mean, the ability to 
just transport anyone or anything anywhere has a number of nightmarish military applications, I can't help but feel. Anyway, you enter the nerve centre of the nebula and go up to the floating command chair, expecting to see Captain Polaris, but the chair is empty. Come over here, the captain orders. He's standing by one of the thousands of vid screens in the room. On the screen is a large space station against a background of stars. Recognise it? Polaris asks. The Cosmos Industrial Station you say. We have intelligence that the Cosmos Station will be attacked by a battlecruiser Dark Star. Maybe you know of the cruiser's commander, Cypor Scarp, Polaris says. Ever since Scarp and his gang of galactic misfits emerged from the Thonex star cluster, they've destroyed seven worlds. Why attack Cosmos? you ask. The station is developing a new person, the Graviton. You turn to Tutor. Information? Tutor's silvery voice recites. Research files classified. Security level Q38 clearance. A click. Then it goes on. Graviton increases planetary masses dramatically. Tests show a 98.3 chance that it will turn planets into black holes. Tough stuff, boss. A world-killing weapon, you gasp. Your job is to keep it out of Scarp's hands, Polaris says. So, already I'm slightly confused, because the more eagle-eyed or eagle-eared amongst the listeners will have noted that what Captain Polaris said was, the station is developing a new person, the Graviton. Um, whereas Tutor seems to indicate that it's not a person, but rather some kind of weapon. I suppose it could be a weapon and a person at the same time, but this already doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. I mean, are we to take it that maybe fast food technology has now reached the point where you can kind of cross some sort of burger event horizon and become so enormously rotund that your mass will bend space-time around you until you hit a point of singularity or is it just an incredibly lackadaisical approach to both continuity and editing i mean it's the second one it is definitely the second one but it's nice to imagine the first one you and tutor rush to the teleportation room where you get ready to beam out on priority clearance suddenly a vid screen comes to life and captain polaris's face appears our deep space communications net has picked up a message Mindor 6, the nearest planet to Cosmos, has been overrun. We have no other information. Maybe it's Scarp setting up an advanced base to attack Cosmos, you say. I wonder if we should check it out. Do you wish to walk directly to Cosmos, or would you rather take your shuttlecraft the Challenger and head for Mindor 6? Um, presumably I could walk to Mindor 6 if I wanted to, but it's not giving me that option. Uh, there is a, a picture of Captain Polaris looking stern on a vid screen. Decent enough, I would say. I think in general I would say that the uh, the art on this is at the high end of workmanlike. I think the guy clearly is a good illustrator, but presumably was working to a pretty strict deadline, so maybe needed to, to be kind of 
economical with with how they approached the work. Anyway, um, I think we'll take the shuttlecraft to Mindor 6 because that seems to me to be a clue of sorts. Oh, it's addressed the, uh, the shuttle issue. Warping to Mindor 6 would be faster, but you want to use the Challenger for this mission. You've just had her fitted with a tachyonic booster, and here's your chance to see how she'll handle at near light speed. So, I mean, she can handle all she wants, but unless Mindor 6 is incredibly close uh, to Cosmos and indeed to our the Nebula base, the journey is going to take probably in the order of, of years at near light speed. So, um, yeah, already the, the science not really stacking up. You and Tutor climb into your command seats, punch in the launch code, ignite the engines and blast. Soon the nebula is far behind. The ship handles even better than you'd hoped. In four days, you're parking in orbit over Mindor 6. And we're sent straight to the next section. Your high-resolution scans pick up signs of heavy fighting on the planet's surface. It must have been quite a battle, boss, Tutor whistles. I detect major damage. Where should we set down, you ask? Two choices, replies Tutor. We can warp down to the old capital building. It's partly destroyed, but we may find some Mindor leaders there. They could tell us what happened. And the other choice? Far side of the planet, I pick up a huge amount of energy being generated. Something is definitely going on over there. Uh, there are actually illustrations for both of these pages. So uh, there's a picture of the Challenger zooming through space and passing a moon. That's pretty cool. And there's a picture of our faceless protagonist who is at least somewhat androgynous staring out of a window at a planet, presumably Mindor 6. So I will say that um, they've not stinted on the artwork at all. There's really plenty of it. So uh, do we go for the capital building or the unusual power source? Well, information is power. People have information. I'm going to go to the capital building. Leaving the ship in orbit, Tutor warps you down. You find yourself standing on the steps of what was once a beautiful busy steel and marbleite building. Now it's a pile of twisted beams and smoking rubble. I detect a life form behind that pillar over there, boss. Tutor points a claw at a broken hunk of stone on the ruins of the capital steps. You set your micro pulsar on stun, then you shout in galactic interlanguage, which I am choosing to believe is Welsh. Come out, we mean you no harm. You see movement behind the pillar. A tall woman with bulging compound eyes steps out. She holds a large blaster pointed your way. She's a citizen of Mindor, says Tutor. I don't believe she'll harm us. No sooner has Tutor spoken than the woman raises her blaster. She fires off a round that just misses your head. Uh, do you want to try and stun her or do you want to hold your fire? and convince her of your friendly intentions. Well, I'm a simple man. Someone shoots a blaster at my head, they're getting stunned. So, uh, yeah, hopefully she won't come to uh, permanent harm from a stunning. But even if she does, I mean, she did shoot me first. Sorry, but I can't take any chances. You fire off a round. The woman drops to the steps. 
When you come around, perhaps you'll be willing to talk, you say. An awful metallic rasp behind you makes you whip around. There stands a square-headed alien in an armoured battlesuit, his pulse gun pointed right at you. Oh no, you exclaim. That's what the woman shot at. She tried to save us and I knocked her out. You fire another round, but your pulsar is set for stun and the alien shakes off the blast. Then it's his turn. His pulse blast sends you and Tutor sprawling. You pass out. But before you do, you hear the same metallic rasp say, I'll take these two to Slee. He'll make sure that they never live to report what's going on here. On to the next section. You come to finding yourself in a small white-walled room. It's very bright, but you can't find a light source. You shake your head to clear it, wondering how you got to this strange place. Hey, Tor. You look over at the robot. Where are we? In the custody of Slee from Zard. The answer comes from outside the cell. I'd like to know the details of your mission here. Slee from Zard. The very name sends a shudder through you. Slee rules a slave planet on the fringes of the galaxy. Lately, he's attacked and looted planets in this sector. Nearly a dozen worlds have felt his wrath. He has no idea of mercy. If he rules Mindor, you're in deep trouble. A powerful, invisible force suddenly squeezes your head. You fear your skull may explode. I don't hear you talking, Slee hisses. Tell me the nebula's plans and I'll turn off the mind compressor. Quickly now, will you reveal Nebula's secrets or do you want to test the limits of the mind compressor? Um, I guess we'll test the limits of the mind compressor. There's something to tell your children about. Uh, assuming you've still got the power of speech in later life after having your mind heavily compressed. The terrible force pressed down on your head with blinding pain. I'm a network operative. You'll not get a word out of me, Slee from Zard. Unfortunately, no one will ever get anything out of you ever again. The force increases pitilessly until you black out, never to awaken. Later, some may applaud your stand. They'd call you brave and defiant. Others are less generous. They would call your actions stupid and stubborn. You won't care. You'll never hear the praises or criticism. Zap. I think Zap here being shorthand for you are dead. So that didn't go so well. Well, we've been recording for a whopping 23 minutes. So uh, I guess we will invoke the sausagey finger bookmark rule and choose to talk instead of getting our mind well and truly compressed. Only fools would choose to have their heads squeezed flatter than a Raxian panworm, says Tutor. I'll talk, you shout. Just let us out. The wall before you slides up with a clang. You find yourself staring at the shining, scaly face of the fiendish Slee from Zard. Slee looks at your uniform, a smile slowly forming on his crooked, bony lips. All right, Nebula spy, he says. Where is the data chip with your orders? There's a picture, and again... A slightly androgynous form, and again, the face of our character is not visible, uh, which is a really nice little recurring motif. There's Slee from Zard, who has got a cloak and a moderately stupid hat. He doesn't look very reptily, 
he mostly just looks like a ticket inspector with a mild skin condition. You hold out a data chip in the palm of your hand. Here it is, you say. You'll find it quite detailed. But as Slee is about to snatch it from your hand, you let it drop to the floor. He bends down to pick the chip up, and you give him a chop across the back of the neck. The tyrant drops stunned to the floor of the cell. I always remember various TV shows from, I guess, the 60s, 70s, and yeah, early 80s, where you could knock someone out by a well-placed karate chop to the back of the neck. A technique which really doesn't appear to be a thing now. I mean, all knockouts in TV land are obviously playing fast and loose with the actual biology because uh, it's actually very hard to render someone unconscious through percussive force in a way that won't lead to significant health problems once they wake up. You've got a pretty good chance of concussing them or doing something equally bad to them. But I do remember with fondness things like Star Trek and Man from Uncle, where, yeah, the old karate chop to the back of the neck was a completely harmless way of rendering someone unconscious. Before the tyrant comes to, you and Tutor locate the cell controls. You slam the door shut, trapping Slee inside. Signal, Nebula, that Slee from Zard has been captured, you say. Mindor 6 is free. So we've completed our mission. Wow. Short mission. So we report to the Nebula on page 115 to find out how we rate as a space ace. Okay, so um, there's quite a varying amount of points on offer. The minimum number of points you can get is 420. Uh, the maximum number you can get is 9,800,396. We have got 506,923 points, placing us in the second rank of Space Aces, uh, which reads, if Captain Polaris needs a second in command, he'll know where to look. I guess this is a series of incredibly brief adventures, effectively. Uh, that's kind of different. But uh, yeah, that ends this playthrough, um, amazingly. I'll go away and delve into Star Challenge Planets in Peril in a little bit more detail and come back with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. <laughs> Well, that was a very short adventure, but honestly, it's a pretty decent reflection of the experience of playing Planets in Peril, so at least it was appropriate for the book. This is not a sophisticated game book. There's only ever binary choices, and a whole bunch of them lead to a sudden end to the adventure. I've counted them. Of course I've counted them. I'm very much that guy. There are 17 pages which are an instant death, and a further 22 that are some form of successful end to your mission. That makes a grand total of 39 different endings. By the time you discount the full art pages, there's only 106 separate sections. When you subtract the 39 endings, that leaves only 67 sections for the adventure proper. And of course, a number of these will send you straight to another section without allowing you to make any choice at all. So we're dealing with a very cramped design space. And yet, for me at least, it works surprisingly well. It's paced at a speed I would describe as frenzied, 
Your core experience will be a series of incredibly short adventures filled with sudden death and equally sudden triumph. While the choices are very simplistic, the puzzles such as they are are completely arbitrary, there's still decisions that feel consequential. And on the odd occasion where I was able to put some thought into which way to go, those choices felt fairly satisfying. There's really not much in the way of bland left or right decision making. You're far more likely to be deciding what kind of space monster to fight or whether to shoot a cyborg with your pulsar. If you are going to make something that's this compact, it's vitally important that you give the player a sense of agency. And Planets in Peril does this well, for the most part, even if the consequences of your choices are highly unpredictable at times. On one level, everything is very incoherent. After being told about the dangers of the Graviton weapon that is definitely not a person, despite what the opening section claims, you can go on a bunch of different adventures, only a handful of which involve direct contact with the Graviton at all. But one of the endings does allow you to deploy the Graviton weapon, which was exactly the sort of thing I wanted to be able to do, so that's nice. It kills you. Turning an enemy spaceship into a black hole is not, it transpires, a good idea when you're fairly nearby. Still, I appreciate the option, and I even appreciate dying as a result of deploying a weapon of mass destruction. That feels like karma to me. And it gives this book a slightly more humanitarian feeling than Skylord, where there was a strong sense that the author was maybe a little bit too fond of hierarchies and authoritarianism. Here, there's a little bit more of a mad, anarchic undertone going, and I like that very much. In Planets of Peril, you are never far away from a faintly baffling demise, but you're also never far away from an equally baffling triumph, and the fact that there's more good endings than bad endings makes exploring the book feel like a pleasure more than a chore. Whether you're trying to actually find the Graviton or simply rebuilding a mutant civilization on the other side of the galaxy, you can be sure of one thing. Stuff will most definitely happen. A lot of stuff. Just a bewildering amount of stuff. If you're not presenting the player with a vaguely fair challenge, then your gamebook lives and dies based on how interesting the situations are and how well the endings fit with those situations. Here, I found the majority genuinely charming, and I went through the book enough times to find almost all the endings. I always enjoy finding out how books are structured, and the simple decisions make exploring this one completely relatively doable. There was still one set of endings where I had to work backwards to find out where the entrance to that particular chunk of story was, but having stuff that's hard to find is not a problem. And getting these sort of hints that there was this strange adventure that I just couldn't fathom how you would possibly get to really did give me the impetus to dive into this in significant detail. This is science fiction adventure as a kind of hallucinatory fever dream. And I think that's something that a lot of choose-your-own-adventure stories have because the profusion of endings and the relatively short decision chains it creates a sense of temporal dislocation, as if you're experiencing multiple universes more or less simultaneously. It's definitely not the same pleasure as beating a tough dungeon or finding a powerful magical item in a fighting fantasy book, 
but there's something about the reality warping effects of being sent on such a profusion of incredibly short journeys that I found very appealing. It helps that there is plenty of imagination on display. In 106 sections, you can visit four different planets, a space station and an enemy battleship. You can tangle with a variety of baddies and meet a couple of friends. You can be teleported, shrunk down to the size of a microchip and turned into an alien insect. You can fight slavers or face off against a man determined to gain superpowers by siphoning off your droid's energy. There's just all kinds of gibberish happening and often making only fragmentary sense at best, but nothing sticks around for long enough that the illogic of the situation gets tiresome. And there's a good lesson here. The wild and wacky works best when you keep the pace up. Is what you might call the Lewis Carroll effect. Alice's adventures are a series of short vignettes, none of which outstay their welcome. Slow burn surrealism is a much harder thing to do than something with real energy. And I think it's telling that I enjoy surreal short stories a lot more than I enjoy surreal novels. It's definitely possible to do lengthy novels with a surrealistic quality, but you're setting yourself a big challenge. Planets in Peril is full of energy and it's throwing so much stuff at the wall. I always appreciate a writer who is willing to throw out so many fun ideas at once. Writers have a tendency to try and hoard the good stuff to get as much mileage as they can out of it but Planets in Peril feels as though it's about three game books crammed into a space that's really barely big enough for one. Looking back at the Transformers books we did a few episodes ago, they would probably have benefited from this kind of pacing and structure where there's just lots of things happening, especially the Dinobot one that felt very plodding. The inclusion of 2 Tor, the robot, to give you someone to bounce off and someone who can deliver additional information, that's also a really good idea. The droid is genuinely a pretty good NPC. It fades easily into the background when it's not needed, and it's somewhat amusing to me to see one of the hardest things to do in game books, a constant companion, delivered so well and so naturally when I've seen so many better creators struggle with them. I think a sidekick is a very useful thing for a science fiction story, they can tell the players things that your character already knows in a way that usually feels more enjoyable than the simple info dump. Aside from the many, many endings, the other thing that encourages replayability is the scoring system. This is both a clever idea to push people to try again and also completely bonkers. There's very little rhyme or reason to which endings score high and which score low, and it's certainly hard to envisage how the best good ending is 23,000 times better than the worst good ending. It almost feels like a satire of capitalism, whereby the rewards of your labour are scarcely related to the actual value of the labour you've undertaken, but that could just be my inner anarchist speaking. It would be quite fun to do a game book where your rewards are doled out based not on your actual accomplishments, but where you've managed to ascend to in some nonsense hierarchy. Even though I recognise that the scoring is pure madness, I still felt pleased with myself when I managed to find the best scoring ending, so it's clearly 
pushing the reward button in my brain, despite me intellectually knowing that it makes no sense. I mean, the stupid thinking ham is stupid, news at 11. It is genuinely terrifying to me how easy it is to manipulate the human mind. The art is solid throughout. It's simple stuff, but the publishers have been very generous with it. So there's loads of small illustrations as well as some larger ones. Art is one of those things that really helps a game book stand out. And particularly in the 80s, you couldn't do video game graphics that were as good as a traditional illustration. That's not a criticism of early video game graphics, by the way. I think there's a real beauty to early video games, but it's a very different form of art at that point. Art was always something that separated game books from more text-based adventure games, and here the prose is so sparse that the art does a great deal of heavy lifting. It's a real asset to the book, and if I were ever in the position to be commissioning art for a game book, I think this would be a good reference point for how to do a lot of simple but effective artwork that elevates without being intrusive. Now, my absolute preference is for artists who bring a definite style that gives the book a unique aesthetic, but in purely mechanical terms, this is hitting the brief really well. There's also some skill in the depiction of our protagonist. It's never entirely clear whether the person in the picture is male or female. They're definitely youthful, but there is this androgyny to them, which would allow both boys and girls to imagine that the character was them. It's really cleverly done. Alternatively, of course, you could read the protagonist as non-binary, which is very cool for a story written well before that was a widespread term. It's not perfect. The character is fairly obviously coded as white, but it's nice to see an attempt at inclusion, which also allows your character to be repeatedly represented in the artwork. Now, there are some issues with the science, obviously. The author doesn't really grasp the actual slowness of near-light-speed travel when traversing interstellar spaces, and also hasn't thought at all about the implications of being able to teleport literally anywhere in the universe. There's also more than a few errors that a decent editor really should have picked up. It was clearly written and edited in a hurry, but I'm kind of okay with gently ludicrous science in older science fiction. It feels like something emblematic of a more innocent age in some ways. I tend to be much harsher on modern stuff that can't be bothered to even check Google for basic scientific information because checking is so much easier now, both for the writer and the reader. And I don't think that the scientific illiteracy harms the internal consistency of the story. I think it was Star Strider we covered not too long ago where there was a time system where you would have to check off time as you progressed through the adventure. But that was really, really irritating because it just didn't make any sense in terms of its own internal logic. Here, the internal logic doesn't make a great deal of sense, but it is at least consistent in feel and consistently applied. So that's Planets of Peril. Is it good? The answer to that is both yes and no. It's a very interesting approach to the challenge of creating a story with relatively few moving parts, and it is brimming with wild and wonderful ideas and events. On the other hand, there's nothing approaching a really satisfying narrative. Even the longest stories you can find are very brief. I did quite like that there are some 
narrative strands that do run for considerably longer than the one we encountered and that provides another additional challenge not just finding the best ending but finding the ending that takes you on the longest journey the internal narrative barely hangs together the science ideas are scattershot at best it loses interest in things remarkably quickly it's not especially well written and the scoring system is pure gibberish on the other hand, I've got a place in my heart for anything which is so crammed full of ludicrous science fiction ideas, and I did play it to the extent of finding basically every ending, so it was clearly doing something right, and at no point did that feel like a chore. It does also demonstrate that spaceship and laser stories are perfectly achievable in game books, and it even provides a few pointers as to how you might go about producing something a bit more involved so so I think it's earned the time I've spent analysing it well it's a short episode but hopefully a sweet one that's all for this time next episode we'll be back on familiar ground as we tackle fighting fantasy book 34 Steeler of Souls I do hope you'll join me for that thank you very much for listening take care and I'll see you soon <laughs>